Hello, and welcome to the Faith Church Podcast channel. We exist to reach people and connect them to God and others. If you would like more information about Faith Church or would like to schedule a visit sometime, visit our website at www.igotofaith.com. We can only do what we do because of the generosity of our Faith Church family. If you would like to contribute to our ministry, you can do so by visiting our website at www.igotofaith.com and hit the giving tab. Or you can text the amount of your contribution to 84321. Both of these options will send you to a safe and secure server. Your giving is much appreciated. Now get ready as our lead pastor continues with part two of his series, Hashtag Van Life. everybody. How's everybody doing, man? Y'all fired up? Let's get fired up. <laughs> Y'all aren't really fired up, are you? Hey, listen, man, it's great to see you guys. My name is Steve Husky, and I am the lead pastor here at Faith Church. And I just want you to know, man, I uh, was spending some time yesterday, and I, I don't say it enough, man. I want you to know, my wife and I, we absolutely consider it a privilege to be your pastor. We love what God's doing here. We love what God allows us to do, man. We just want you to know, man, we love you. Thank you for letting us be a part of your lives, man. We mean that from the bottom of our hearts, man. We love you guys. <clears throat> hey, listen, um, last week, if you weren't with us, we launched a brand new series entitled Hashtag Van Life. And here's where it's about is... Um, the, the minivan for years and years was kind of iconic with families that if you were looking for a family, if you were looking for a family vehicle, it was the minivan. If you needed enough room to go on vacation, to run around town, it was the minivan. And so we've adopted this iconic image to look at our family to look at how our family is structured and where our family's going. And so, because we know this, we know a couple of things is true. Number one, that we all have family. Now, your family may not be like mine, and mine may not be like yours. In fact, we live in a time and a season where families are very diverse. We have blended families, and we have some divorced families. We have um, kids being raised by grandkids. So wherever you're at, whatever stage of life you're in, again, we all have family. Now, if you, by chance, maybe you are here, you're a young adult, and you're looking forward to one day having kids or having a spouse, I just want to challenge you. You may feel like maybe this does not apply to you. And rather, I would tell you to maybe take good notes, to open up your heart, to prepare yourself for the future that God has for you. And maybe if you're on the other side, maybe, unfortunately, you've lost your spouse or you're divorced and maybe you don't have any other close family, I would say this to you. This would still apply to you because I believe God puts us in strategic places at strategic times to help love and encourage people. So while this, this information may not be directly beneficial to you if you have no family right now, it would still be beneficial for you to take some of the things that God's going to share and for you to use it and invest in other people. So wherever we're at, man, let's open up our hearts because I believe God has great things for us. In fact, here's where we were at last week. If you were not with us, again, talking about this idea of a van being our family, here's what we said last week, and this is where we started. That seating is one of the most important features when it comes to having a successful family. Again, we looked at the Apostle Paul, and he gave us kind of the seating chart of what the family should look like. And we said it this way, that dad sits in the driver's seat, mom rolls shotgun and say it with me, kids sit in the back. And I know maybe some of you had some kids crawling over the back seat trying to get in the front this week, and hopefully you fought them back and kept them in the back seat. Basically, again, it's just saying this, that God has given dads, God has given fathers the primary role of leadership in the home, and that is a terrific responsibility. God has put you in the place for the steering wheel, but he has set beside you, the Bible says, a helpmate. 
that God has given um, men wives and given children mothers and the role of that mom, the goal of that wife is ultimately to bring correction and direction and that if men will listen to their wives, they oftentimes will bring a lot of wisdom that even though we're steering the car, wives can speak into where we're going and that's a very helpful thing. And also kids, man, I believe the best thing that we can do is to keep them in the right place and to parent them well. And so we ended last week by saying this, that if you don't sit in your seat, your family will have limited success, which means if dads get out of their seat, if moms get out of their seat, if kids get in the front seat, if we don't sit in our seat and own the responsibility that God has given us, it's going to be very difficult to have the family that I believe God wants us to have. And I just believe this with all of my heart that God wants every family in this room to have an incredible, strong, healthy, growing family. In fact, I want you to know today, we're not here just to give you a help topic or to give you some quick tips. What we believe is that Jesus Christ is the hope of the world. And through his grace and through his power, that he's able to minister and move into our lives, our situations, our details, and make a difference that we could never experience on our own. Amen? And so I want to encourage you to open up. Um, Today, as we transition out of the seating chart, I want to talk about a really kind of cool feature that most of you have had your whole life, but um, maybe depending on when you were raised or how you were raised, maybe you didn't have it. Today, I want to talk about climate control, climate control, because there was a time climate control, the way it happened is you adjusted the climate based on the windows, right? We didn't have a lot of money growing up, so we didn't have really expensive cars, which means when we got hot in the summer, we didn't turn the air on, we didn't have it, we rolled the windows down. And when you got cold, yeah, it wasn't the power, baby. Had to roll it up. But the car has transitioned over time. In fact, cars, when they originally were made, they did not have climate control. It was just a vehicle to get you from point A to point B. But somewhere along the 20s, someone invented heat. But it was either on or it was off. There was no temperature. When you got cold, you turn it on. And when you got too hot, you turn it off. Somewhere around the 30s or the 40s, air conditioner came in. Again, same thing. People, if they were too hot, they would crank on the air. And when they would get too cold, they would turn it off. But thankfully, in the 60s came climate control. People could decide how they wanted the experience in their car to be, how hot, how cold. And, uh, you know, people could turn it up, turn it down. Really cool features. Somewhere along the late 60s came one of the coolest features that my wife and I only in the last about five or six years came into, and that's heated seats. Woo! Anybody here love some heated seats? I almost, man, I love being in the South, but I almost wish we were in the North again just to have some heated seats in the winter. But my favorite part of the heated seats is not, cool, or not warming up your tush when it's cold, but sometimes we'll go rolling down the road and my wife every now and then will doze off. Anybody have any dozing wives? And I'll turn her heated seat on when she's sleeping. She'll wake up. She's like, it's hot in here. I'll be like, baby, it's just me. It's, it's just me. And so um, heated seats came along, and somewhere along the 80s came this thing called dual uh, climate control, which for a long time, whoever was in the driver's seat got to set the tone for the whole car, and it made it difficult, maybe created some divorces and some challenges, because everybody's got a different feel. In fact, my wife and I, when we travel, a lot of times we'll travel distances. We travel at night when, um, you know, everybody can kind of crash out, and I can just focus on driving. And there's a couple of things you got to do to stay awake at night, like a couple of things I know work. Eating mints will keep you awake. Uh, one of my favorite, this is Trish, I'm just helping you out. You can write these down. Um, eating sunflower seeds when you're driving, kind of focusing on breaking sunflower seeds sometimes keeps you mentally acute. And, uh, but the best thing for me that keeps me awake is keeping the temperature like around 63 degrees, which my wife will fall asleep and she'll wait. She's like, it's cold in here. And I'm like, listen, baby. If, you, if it gets too cold, the worst that's going to happen is you wake up cold. If it gets too warm, we're going to wake up dead. 
So we, we got to keep it cold. But with that idea of climate control, what I want to do today is I want to talk about the climate control in a family. And when I say that, here's what I mean is that we can create a healthy atmosphere in the family for maximum comfort. Because I know in this room, in some of the marriages that are represented here, in some of the things that are happening with kids and grandkids, that I know that there are some very challenging and very difficult atmospheres in our home. In fact, some of you on the way here, you had a frosty ride to church because you said the wrong thing to your wife and she didn't talk to you the entire way here. Icicles, right? (laughs) Forming on the car. Some of you guys had a very heated ride because maybe things got hot, you got in an argument, you kicked the dog, spanked the kid, and you needed to get to church because of things that happened getting to church. But here's what I know is that all of us, we have atmospheres in our family, we have climates in our homes, and here's my heart and here's my hope, and this is what I want you to hear above anything else I share, is this, is I believe that God will give you grace to become a thermostat in your home and not just the thermometer. See, thermometers reflect the atmosphere of the home. And sometimes when things are very tense, if we're not getting along with our spouse, we tend to go where they're at. We tend, if they're upset, we get upset. If they're angry, we get angry. If our kids are frustrated, we get frustrated. And what happens is the entire culture and climate of our house begins to decline. But I want you to know that I believe that God is going to give each and every one of us in this room the grace and the potential with the help of the Holy Spirit in our lives to be a thermostat in our home that you can walk out of here today with confidence that God is going to help you to change the atmosphere of your home and begin to make a healthier home environment. Does anybody here believe that? See, the Bible tells us that God has called us to be the light of the world. And so if by the grace of God and by the spirit of God and with the help of God, we can move into this world and make a difference, that if we can bring hope and peace and joy into the world we live, how much more does God want to use you? Whether you're a child, whether you're an adult husband, maybe you feel like you've not had a lot of influence. I just believe with all of my heart that God is going to help us. God's going to help you and God's going to help me change the dynamic of our home with the power of the Holy Spirit to be a thermostat in our home. That's my hope and that's my desire for you. So today I want to talk about the 10 commandments of climate control. The 10 commandments of climate control. Because there are some things that you're going to have to intentionally do that if you want to change the climate of your home. And when you look all the way back in the Old Testament, originally God gave Moses on Mount Sinai the original Ten Commandments. And those Ten Commandments, some of those were vertical, had to do with man's relationship with God. For example, don't take God's name in vain, um, don't have any false idols in your life. And some of those commandments had to do with horizontal, man's relationship with other people. For example, don't steal, don't covet, things like that. What I want to do today in the Ten Commandments of Climate Control is I want to talk about some of the things that happen between the front seat and the front seat, what it looks like for you to have a strong, healthy marriage, and also I want to look at what happens between the front seat and the back seat, what God can help you to do as parents to be successful in this incredible, difficult, challenging thing called parenthood, okay? So Ten Commandments of Climate Control, we're going to roll really quick, so I'd encourage you to take good notes. Number one, thou shalt resolve conflicts quickly. Everybody shout quickly. Quickly. See, we have this tendency, I don't know about you, but sometimes we like to hold a grudge, don't we? We get into a a conversation with our spouse, it turns into a conflict, and man, sometimes we like to carry that, we like to really hold on to things, and I want you to know that you can never have the marriage that God wants you to have holding on to bitterness, unforgiveness, and grudges in your marriage. And for some reason, a lot of times couples think that maybe you're not going to have arguments, in fact, I, uh, I regularly counsel couples, and I hear this a lot of times from young couples. I'll say this. Here's a question I ask. Tell me about the last big fight you had. 
And every now and then, this is, this is funny. Every now and then, they look at me and they say, Pastor Steve, we, we don't fight. And I'm like, no, no. <laughs> no, for real. And they're like, no, we just love each other so much. We never fight. Listen, baby, give it time. Because if you put two people from two different backgrounds, with two different points of view, with two different perspectives in a home under the same roof, you will have conflict. Just because you have conflict does not make you unhealthy. Just because you have conflict in your home does not mean you have problems in your marriage. What creates problems in your marriage is not when you have conflict, it's when you re- refuse to resolve the conflict. And so here's what I pray. When couples, when couples tell me this, this is, this is how I close the session. I grab my hand, I pray, Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray God, I'd give them a knockdown drag out this week in Jesus' name. And you say, why in the world would you pray it? And here's why. Because you need to know how the man you're about to marry handles conflict. Does he punch you? Does he punch the wall? Does she run to mama's house? Does she leave for a week? Does he quit talking to you? You need to know how people deal with conflict, whether they deal with it in a healthy way or an unhealthy way. And all of us in this room, including myself, including you, we all at times have dealt with conflict in very unhealthy ways. And when we carry bitterness and we refuse to forgive, it changes the climate of our marriage. In fact, I would say it this way. If you let the climate of your marriage stay too frosty too long, it'll catch a cold and get sick and die. Come on, somebody. You know, the Bible says, don't let the sun set on your wrath. That means, listen to me, you may not have to fix the problem, but you should go to bed knowing you still love each other. Jesus taught us this. Jesus said, listen, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Turn the other cheek. And if he calls us to do that with those who we call our enemy, how much more should we be willing to forgive and overlook those we're married to. The Bible says love forgives a multitude of sins. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that love keeps no list of wrongs. And I'm just telling you, listen to me, you are married to a man who is imperfect. That applies to everybody here but my wife. (laughs) You are married to a man who's imperfect. Come on, wives, can you say amen? You are married to a woman, men, who is imperfect. Can I get an amen from the men? So it's going to be... Way too much boldness in the room. It's going to happen. Conflicts and disagreements will happen. But what you need to know is thou shalt resolve conflict quickly. Make sure you're willing to forgive, willing to talk to each other, willing to hear each other's point of view. Number two, in order to change the climate of your home, thou shalt date regularly. Regularly. When we get married, man, before we get married, I don't know about you guys, but I was all about her. I wanted to get her what she wanted, when she wanted, how she wanted. All she had to do was call me and say I wanted it, and ding-dong, I was delivering it, baby. She needed a, she wanted a cherry slushie from Burger King. It was on its way. She wanted a piece of pie from this place called Baker Square. It was on its way. She went walking down the mall, seeing a 10-foot stuffed bunny for Easter. It was on its way. And all of a sudden, we get married, and I'm like, I mean, I did all that. What else I got to do? <laughs> and I'm just telling you, what it took to get them has to do to keep them. And for some reason, we get so busy with life, so overwhelmed, we forget to romance the people we love. And I'm telling you, in order to invest in the climate of your marriage, you're going to have to continue to date regularly. Now, when I talk about dating, it's really important because there's something special, I think, that communicates to your spouse when you set a date and you honor that date. See, we all have busy lives, raising kids, working jobs, taking care of homes, Uh, doing all the things we do, 
And for me, I'm I'm thankful that, you know, our church is growing. I'm thankful that there's lots of people that go here. But I've said this before. Each and every Wednesday on my calendar, there's a slot. You can look at it now. Every Wednesday at lunch is my wife's date for her and I. That if no matter anything else happens, no matter what, what else goes on during the week, she knows every Wednesday is our time. Now, there are times every now and then I miss that. Do you know what that communicates to my wife when I tell her I have a date and I don't come? No matter what happens, what it tells her is something else is more important. What I want to communicate to my wife is I didn't just love her when I dated her and I just didn't want to do what tried to please her then, that I love my wife and she is the number one priority outside of Christ, beyond the church, beyond my job, beyond my kids, beyond anything in this world. My wife is the number one responsibility. And there's something special about dating, and here's why. When you can get your wife alone, there's a couple things that happen. Number one, you have undivided attention, and number two, you have uninterrupted communication. You cannot have that in group gatherings. You can't have that when your kids are with you because they're always clamoring for your attention. But when you can just sit and you say, Pastor, we don't have a lot of money, then go to McDonald's, get a, get a dollar cone, split it on a wall, sit, and just have some conversation one-on-one. But anytime your spouse does not feel like they are a priority to you, your marriage will begin to decline, and the climate of your home will get a little frosty. Come on, somebody. Uh, Number three, number three, thou shalt love sacrificially. Thou shalt love sacrificially. Now, when I say love sacrificially, we went over this verse last week, but let's just kind of hang here for a few minutes. The Bible told, uh, the apostle Paul tells husbands, and I think this is true for husbands and wives, but primarily husbands. He says this, come on, y'all read this. Husbands, love your wives by which we think, bow, chicka, chicka, bow, wow. Hey, baby, I love you. No, this is not an erotic love. This is not an emotional love. This is not a friendship love. We said it last week. What God calls us to give our spouses is sacrificial love. In fact, he goes on and he gives us some definition of what this means. He says, husbands, I want you to love your wives the same way Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Well, that's a whole different kind of love. See, the challenge is, and a lot of us, the reason our marriages aren't as healthy as we like them is because we always want to give our spouse the love we think they want. And instead, we need to give them the love that they deserve and the love they need. See, what Christ did when he loved us. See, that's the comparison we have. The, Christ, the love that Christ gave us, God didn't give us what he wanted to give us. Jesus gave us. He loved us in a way that we needed to be loved, not what we wanted to be loved. Think about it. God could have filled your pockets with money. God could have blessed us all with big houses and new cars. Instead, do you know how he loved us? He loved us with his death on the cross of Calvary. See, the reason we needed Christ to die for us is we're all sinners. We're all separated from our Father. And God sent his son Jesus to come into this world and to die a sacrificial death for us. And that was the price of his love. In fact, it was so costly just before he did it. He said, God, if there's any other way for me to love these people, if there's any other way for me to repair the relationship between you and him, then God, let me do that. But if this is the only way, then I'm willing to do it. Which means if our love for our spouse is to be sacrificial, there's times that ought to get uncomfortable. There's times that ought to cost us something. There's times that ought to stretch us in a way that we don't always like, which means we got to love our spouse the way they need to be loved, not the way we want to love them. Come on, somebody. Y'all hearing that? We have uh, for everybody here, every family, and we're asking, please, just one copy per family. And we have three different books. They're all the five love languages. But there's one uh, just for married couples, the five love languages, which will help you to figure out how to love your spouse. See, we all have different love languages. Uh, mine is, is physical touch, shocker, um, you know, which means that, you know, if you hug me, hold my hand, other frisky things, we're good. 
My wife is not, which means she wants me to wash dishes and hang out with her a lot. I got to love my wife the way she wants to be loved, and she needs to love me the way I need to be loved. And this book will help you figure out how to do it. We also have a copy for, um, for kids and for teenagers. So if you have teenagers, listen to me, teenagers, they're easier to kill than love, but we're going to help you to love them. And so there's a copy for teenagers. There's also a copy for young kids. You can grab one of these on the way out. We paid money for these, but we did it as an investment into your families to help for you to set a healthy climate in your home. <clears throat> number four, number four, this is my favorite one. Thou shalt keep intimacy a priority. Thou shalt keep intimacy a priority. Because here's what we know is, man, and, and can I just be real today? Listen, um, I got married because I wanted to have sex. Nobody else going to say it. I'll say it. And so, but here's the thing is you get married and then you get a job and she gets a job and now you have a house and you have kids and then you've got a dog and you've got a yard to mow and you've got all this stuff. And all of a sudden there's no time for the thing you got married for, which means I want you all to hear this. If the only time you are intimate with your spouse is when you feel like it, when you're up to it, when you're not too tired, when it's in room in your schedule, you are not being intimate enough. Here's what the Bible says. I love it. The Apostle Paul, he addresses this, man, so specifically and so clearly. And I want us to look at a couple of the words he uses. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, every voice in this room, read this with me. He says, the husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs. And the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. Now, I got to hit this on the front, and I want you to notice the pronouns he uses. He doesn't say men and women. He says husbands and wives, which I'm going to tell you, there's no better sex than married sex because practice makes perfect. Y'all are the most prudish church in the world. Listen, we ought to be very comfortable talking about this because the world's very comfortable talking about it. Television's very comfortable talking about it. Every news radio, everything on the internet is very comfortable talking about this. If there's any place we should be comfortable talking about the issue of sex is it was a God-given gift for the context of one man and one woman in the context of marriage for life. We should celebrate it. We should lift it up because it's the way God designed it. And so God says, hey, not men, not men, but husbands. When you're married, listen to me, women, if they're pressing you, tell them, say, you better put a ring on it. If you don't give me a ring, you don't get the thing. The husband <laughs> should fulfill his wife's sexual needs. And the wife, it's flip-flop. Men, come on, listen to this. It's not, never mind, I'm not going to say that. Yeah. And the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. The words he uses here are very powerful, and I want you to listen to them. He says, listen, wives, I want you to know something. It is your, it's your, it's your, it's your job to fulfill the needs of your husbands. Men, listen to me. It's your job to fulfill the needs of your wife. The words he uses here are very powerful. Here's why. When he uses the word here to fulfill, this word is used 50 times in the New Testament in the original language, and it's used two different ways. The first way it's used is a debt that's to be paid. There's a debt that needs to be paid. The second way that's used is used in the context of God rewarding those who are faithful. God rewards. God fulfills his promise to those who are faithful. And, um, and then this other word here is needs. Is, it's the other side of a debt. So there's a debt that needs to be paid, and the wife's obligation is to fulfill it. 
to the husband, there's a debt your wife has, and it's his job to fulfill it. You say, wait a minute, Pastor Steve, you're making sex and intimacy sound very romantic. It's a debt I owe my husband. See, you're looking at it the wrong way. What God has done, wives, is, is he has strategically set you up and given you the goods to meet the intimate needs of your husband. And that is a privilege and an honor that God give, has given us, and it establishes the health of a marriage. And men, before you get in and get out too quick, he has given you the obligation to meet the intimate physical sexual needs of your wife as well, which means the only way you can do that is to communicate. The only way you can do that is to talk openly about your needs, about your wants, and about your desires. The only way you can do it is to keep working at it and practicing to get it perfect. And I'm telling you, listen to me, this is very important. I believe with all of my heart, the quantity of intimacy in a marriage determines the quality of a marriage, which doesn't mean the more sex, the better the marriage, but I can tell you the less sex, the worse the marriage. That's a fact, which means if we're not being healthy in a way that God's created us and called us to meet each other's needs, our marriage will deteriorate. And so we got to continue to work at it and we got to love our spouse and not nobody, anybody else, but I volunteer first for this. Amen. <laughs> he goes on, he gives us mothers, we're running out of time. So next one, number five. Number five, thou shalt do life together. Thou shalt do life together. See, man, we, we get so busy. I don't know about you guys, but there are a couple, sometimes I can go a couple days and, and not see my wife. I mean, not really see her. I mean, we're, we're passing like ships and knives. Anybody with me? And I'm just telling you, we got to find a way to do life together. When I first met my wife, when we were dating, I couldn't wait to be with her. And sometimes, again, schedules and things get so hectic and busy we get busy chasing our dreams and chasing our careers and trying to climb the corporate ladder and still hang out with our friends that somewhere along the line, our spouses fall back behind us. And I'm telling you, the greatest thing you can do is to do life together because the Bible says when a man and a woman come together, they are no longer two, but one. That a husband, he leaves his mother and father and he cleaves to his wife and a wife's thoughts is not for her homegirls, not for her hobbies, but for her husband, which means, listen to me, we gotta do life together. I'm telling you, if you will pray together and play together, you'll stay together. If you don't spend any time having fun together and you don't spend any time with Jesus together, the chances of the climate of your house being strong is very low. You got to do life together. Come on, somebody. This, this, is one of the, this is one of the strengths of Alabama is you all love Alabama football equally. And so you watch games together unless you have an Auburn and Alabama split home and then I can't help you. <laughs> Only Jesus can. But find a hobby. Find something you enjoy to do together. Join a connect group together. Get in ministry together. Build a business together. Do something that you can make sure you are doing hand in hand, holding hands together. I'm telling you, charging hell with a water pistol. Because if you get too busy doing your thing and your wife falls behind you, it'll affect the climate of your home in a negative way. So let's roll. Number six, this is for the front seat to the back seat. I want to talk about parenting. Let me give you just the definition of parenting. If you're here and you're a parent, here's your goal as a parent. Your number one goal and priority as a parent is to raise your kids to be successful adults. Your goal is not for them to be your friend. And I know we want that. And here's the tension that exists. And, and my wife and I, she's kind of on one side and I'm on the other. And I'll let you figure out who's where. But the goal is to find this tension between not being their friend but being friendly and being their boss but not pushing them around. Anybody want to take a guess who's Sean and which one's me? <laughs> 
Because, listen to me, if you get too friendly, they will take advantage of you. And if you get too bossy, they will disrespect you. So you have to find this tension by building a relationship with your kids, but making sure that you are the clear authority in the home. The parents are in the front seat. And come on, say it one more time. Kids are in the back. And so the way we create a healthy parenting climate in our home, number one is thou shalt build relationships. Everybody say that last word, actively. That adverb is really powerful, which means you can't just say, well, last summer we went on vacation or remember a year ago. I know this, in order to have a healthy relationship with our kids, it takes a daily investment. And the challenge is, where do you find time? And I, let me just give you a couple, a couple tips. For me, for my wife and for us and our kids, we try very intentionally to go out of our way to have conversations with our kids. Now, if you know anything about kids, and, and, and for all of you guys that are like, I don't know, 20 and under, somewhere in there, uh, a lot of times they'll give one-word answers. How was your day? Good. Um, anything go wrong today? No. Anything you want to talk about? No. And so here's the challenge. When we have conversations with our kids, and this is what I would encourage you to do, is to try to ask your kids open-ended questions that they cannot answer with a one-word answer. Now, they'll trick you because they'll find a way to answer with one word. Uh, last night, I was, I was hanging out with my son, and I was actually laying on his bed talking to him. And um, actually, we were getting ready to pray together. And I said, man, is it, what can I pray for you about? Zach, what do you need prayer for? And I'm like, you got a lot going on. You're playing football and you're in school. What do you, you got studies. What do you need prayer for? Nothing. I said, you don't need prayer for anything. I'm going to beat you, and then we'll need prayer for healing. <laughs> you got to have it. But, I mean, I, I mean, I try to open up this big, like, what do you need prayer for? Nothing. But here's what I want you to know is, listen to me. If you will find a five-minute conversation every day to have your kids, listen, refuse to allow a day to pass by without you having some kind of conversation because we need to make sure we are building our relationships actively, which means it takes time and it takes an investment, that we are looking to make sure we're having those conversations and we are investing them so our relationship is absolutely strong. Number seven, number seven, thou shalt discipline. Oh, there's the word. See, I don't know about anybody else. Has anybody else here got so mad at your kids and then you beat them and felt bad later? Yeah, me either. That never happened to me either. <laughs> Sometimes, I mean, man, sometimes our discipline is all over the place. Some of you guys, listen, you don't want to hear this, but you are a pushover. Your kids are in the driver's seat, and they got you tied up, hog-tied in the trunk. And some of you guys are overbearing, and you're this close to children's services showing up at your house and taking your kid. We have to find this place in the middle, which means our goal is to discipline consistently. You say, how do you do that? I'm telling you, every home, every kid needs to have rules, and then they have responsibilities. There needs to be clear boundaries in your home of what's acceptable, what's unacceptable. What's the responsibility? Now, you don't have to have what's in my home, and I don't have to have what's in your home. But does your kid know what the rules are and what his responsibilities are? If you are not on the same page, it will create tension between you and your kids because you will discipline for them for things that they're confused about. They need to know exactly what's Do you expect them to make their bed every day, just Saturdays, sometimes? Whose job is it to vacuum? Are they supposed to put away dishes? Or do you just assume that they're going to come home and do it? Because let me tell you, kids will never, I shouldn't say never, kids will rarely lead the way. But if you set out very clear rules, this is what's in bounds, this is what's out of bounds, this is what's acceptable, this is unacceptable. This is your responsibility. This is your sister's. This is mine. That way, anytime they violate the rules and responsibilities, you can deal with rebellion. It is your job, and it is my job to discipline our kids. Do you know why? Watch this. Because I told you, the number one responsibility of a parent is to raise their kids to be successful adults, which means one day they're going to get a job and they're going to go and their boss is going to give them rules 
and responsibilities. And like all of us, they're going to miss the mark. And their boss is going to come. And you know what he's going to do? He's not going to give them a trophy. He's not. They're going to face consequence. So what we need to do is we need to set them up to realize there's goals that they need to strive for. And when they miss the goals, when they fall short of the rules, when they miss the responsibilities and don't fulfill them, there's consequences. And I'm just going to tell you, listen, guys, and I know I'm talking quick because I'm trying to cover a lot of ground. But some of us, man, we go way overboard and we lose our mind and we look at our kids and they do something and it's not really a big deal. We're like, you're grounded for five years. And then we leave, and they're like a day, and they're like, Mom, can I be ungrounded? Can I be ungrounded? Please, can I be ungrounded? And you just want them to shut up. So you're like, okay, listen, I'm going to let you off this time, but that's it. And when you give your kid a boundary, and they violate it, and then you set up discipline, and you don't honor it, you know what you're telling them? They can do what they want. So you need to make sure, and I need to make sure, as we discipline our children, that we are very fair, we're very fair with the judgment we mete out. And then we stick to our guns. You stick to your gun. Corporal punishment, I know, man, it's a very crazy time that if you touch your kids, um, somebody's calling and reporting you. That's why I pull the blinds at my house. Um, I hide the marks. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I, I don't beat my kids much. And so, really, my kids are too old. But I think there's a place for corporal punishment. But if you beat your kids out of anger, uh, you're the problem, not them. Uh, I, I was talking to... Uh, one of the doctors over Bone and Joint, and this, I thought this was, I had mixed feelings about this. I, I thought it was a little funny because I could relate as a kid. But you know the number one injury they see to Bone and Joint for women? The number one injury for women at Bone and Joint. Anybody want to guess what it is? Torn rotator cuff, and it's, it's the right one. Anybody want to know why? Trying to beat your kid while you're driving. <laughs> see, my, my parents didn't beat me while they was driving. They pulled over and beat me. Two, two things we used to hate is don't make me stop and don't make me come up there. Because my mom and dad would come up there and they would stop and then we would regret it. But I remember forget my, my brother one day brought home, we were young, brought home a car they handed out at school that if, if they or one of their friends were being physically abused, call this number. And I remember my, dad, my brother threatened my dad. I'm going to call this number. He said, listen, by the time help gets here, you'll be dead. <laughs> so... So there is a place for punishment. Just let it be appropriate. But I'm telling you, listen to me. If we want a, if we want a climate of health in our home, it is our responsibility as parents to make sure, listen to me, that we are disciplining consistently. Number eight, we're almost home. Thou shalt admit wrongs humbly. There was a time this would not have been on a screen I was teaching on. But here's what I know, and I think some of you guys can get this. Let me just ask a question. Come on, parents. Parents, have you ever yelled at your kids and knew you went overboard? Have you ever accused your kids of doing something that later on you found out they didn't really do? Come on. Listen, the worst thing you can do is just hide that and not admit that. The best thing you can do is go to your kid and say, you know what? Dad makes mistakes too. I just want you to know I apologize I went overboard. I want you to know I'm sorry for how I said that to you. I want you to know I shouldn't have talked to you that way. I'm telling you the greatest thing we can do to our kids is go to them and humbly admit, man, dad blows it too. Because the Bible says if we confess our sins one to another that we'll be made whole, the greatest thing that'll bring health to a home is for us to admit, baby, I'm not perfect. I shouldn't have spoke to you that way. Son, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done that to you. We need to admit our shortcomings to another, one another because that's where the power of grace and God shows up is when we humble ourselves before God and he lifts us up. Amen. Parents that project perfection have kids that carry rejection. Parents that project perfection have kids that carry rejection. 
When you never admit you're wrong, kids will always try to live up to an expectation they cannot meet. They'll always try to be perfect themselves, and they'll always know they'll fail. And it'll divide you and separate you from your kids. But when you go to your kids and say, listen, dad blew it just like you. You messed up, and so do I. It opens up a great conversation for you to have with your kids. Number nine, number nine, thou shalt give extravagantly. Thou shalt give extravagantly. Now, we live in a time, in a season, um, for some reason, man, and I wish, I don't know how we change this. I don't, I don't, want, to, I don't want to go on like a, a sociological trail and try to break it all down, but I think you go all the way back, the Great Depression, and parents couldn't give their kids anything. And the next generation, the war generation, and they couldn't give their kids anything. And somewhere along the 60s, income started going up, hit a little dip in the 70s, 80s. Income in this society, in our nation, went up higher for family than ever before. And for generations, parents couldn't give their kids anything. And something switched, and I think they just determined, I'm going to make sure my kids didn't have what I had. I'm going sure, to make sure my kids have what I didn't have. And we started buying stuff for our kids. And then the next generation, I'm going to buy for my kids. And, man, we just get our kids everything. We make sure they got, listen, some of you jokers are going to buy your kids a $1,000 iPhone. Are you crazy? Stop it. And I know we do it because we want our kids to have. We want them to have the best. The best thing you can buy your kid is not something that costs money. When I challenge you and I challenge me to give extravagantly in my home, I mean to give my kids time, words, and touch. The best thing you can do is get in your ears, kid, and pour out words on them. They live in a society that is tearing them down. They go to school and they're bullied. They go and they deal with culture that absolutely destroys them. In the home of a healthy culture, they are getting words that feed their self-esteem, that build them up, to let them know they're valuable. Your kids and my kids should never have to wonder if we're proud of them. They should never have to wonder if we love them. They should never have to be curious about how we feel about them. I'm telling you, I look for opportunities. I think probably my kids are tired of me telling them, but I try to tell them almost every day, listen, Dad's proud of you. I think you're doing a great job. I'm so proud of you for serving at church. Zach, thanks for showing up and work in a nursery. Kayla, I'm so glad, man, that you give yourself. Man, my daughters are some of the most generous kids. And man, they buy things for people and nobody knows. They give gifts. And, and I make sure, listen, nobody else can thank. But dad's so proud of you, man. I love you. I want you to know, man, the Lord's pleased with you. I want you to know, man, I think you're beautiful. Man, I'll look at him sometimes and say, my goodness, you're beautiful. Look at you. I don't want anybody else. I don't want them to ever have to wonder, am I pretty enough? Dad's proud of you. I love you. And I just try to pour out love on him. I try to pour out. And when I can, I get my arms around him. And I hug on them and I kiss them. And you say, well, my kid don't let me. Listen, I'll give my kids a, can- a chance. I'll sneak up behind them. I'll grab them. And I'll just hold on to them. And it's funny because they'll fight for the first second. And then they'll lean in. Because everybody wants affection. Everybody wants buildup. Some of you in this room, you wondered how, wonder how my dad felt about me. I don't ever want my kids leaving wondering how dad felt. I want them to get to the next joker and say, man, I hope you love me half as much as my dad loved me. I hope you care about me half as much as my mom cared about me. And the only way you can do it is to give extravagantly. Love as much as you can, speak as much as you can, hold as much as you can. Listen, until they won't let you do it anymore. And here's what I found. The more you'll do it, the more they'll lean in. Number 10, and I'll close with this. Tenth commandment of creating a healthy climate in your home is thou shalt make Jesus part of your family. Jesus should not be a sleepover friend and he shouldn't be a first responder. A lot of us, man, Jesus just, well, hey, hey, tomorrow morning we're going to church and that's the only time they've heard of Jesus all week. Or we're in trouble. Some, hey, let's get together, let's pray. Now everybody expresses faith in a different way in their home and I'm not gonna tell you how to express it in your home. 
Some of you, maybe you do devotions with your family every day. Maybe you get together and pray a couple times a week. I'm just challenging you this, that Jesus should be a regular part of our home. Faith should be a part of the environment and the culture in our home. Because without Christ, we have nothing. Without Christ, we're lost. You may have a healthy family, but without Jesus, listen, your kids can play, they can play travel ball, they can get scholarships, they can go off to school, but without Jesus, they're lost. The greatest thing I can ever do for my kids, I love my family most when I love Jesus best. And so we got to make sure that faith is a part of the environment of our home. But through it all, here, I want you to know this today, church, that family is incredibly complicated. People are difficult. But I believe with all of my heart that God will enable you with his grace and his power to create a climate in your home to make it healthier than it's ever been. I want to encourage you to take just one of these 10 commandments this week, just one, and apply it to your home. And I believe God will change it. Anybody here want a healthier home and a better family? I want to pray for you. Father, God, we come in the name of Jesus, and I thank you for family. I thank you for our kids. I thank you for our parents. Thank you for our spouses. God, I know it comes at times with baggage, and it comes with tension, and it comes with conflict. But I believe and I declare over every family, every marriage, every home represented here this morning that, God, you would empower them with grace and ability to be the thermostat in their family. That, God, the way we love, the decisions we make, the things we do, that, God, it would begin to positively impact and influence our homes. I pray that marriages in this room that are on the rocks, I pray would be restored. I pray would be made whole. I pray, God, every husband would love their wives. I pray every wife would come alongside of their husband. Father, I pray that, God, you would help us to love our kids, to raise them, to discipline them, to put our arms around them. And I pray, God, with your help, that you'll make our homes healthy and whole. And, God, we thank you for it in Jesus' name. And everybody who agreed, said amen.